1: Hello everyone, Ron Spomer back with Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast number 14. And I'm looking forward to this one. I haven't seen this story since it came out long, long ago. And uh, let me see where it was printed. American Hunter, February of 1992. So I probably made the hunt a year or two before that. So that's going back a ways. And it's up in Alaska, one of my favorite places to hunt, a real sportsman's paradise. This hunt is called a caribou adventure. The subtitle, when searching for big bulls on the Alaska tundra, patience pays off in many ways by Ron Spomer. We'd been sitting on the tundra bluff 150 feet above the braided river for several hours. Phil Esai and I, hunting the way man had been hunting this big Alaska terrain for 10,000 years. Up there, in the gentle August breeze, you could visualize how they've done it. Man, the consummate predator, using his two best weapons, eyes and brain, to ensure his immediate future. Wait, watch. Wait, watch squinting against the pure light, straining to the extreme of vision. Were those caribou or just spruce dancing in the heat shimmer? Phil was much closer to this truth than I. He seemed born to it, typecast to patience, steadily scanning while I fidgeted and wandered, eating blueberries, making pictures, tossing stones down the steep gravel cut bank like a bored child. How long does it take after deplaning an anchorage to match the rhythms of a more ancient reality? We got two grizz up here one time, Phil said, rolling away from his little loophole spotting scope and propping his head up with his right hand. One come out right there, and my hunter, he never even seen him till he was almost here. He points with his chin, close. He got him, though. You get caribou up here pretty often, I ask. All the time, lots. See that ridge? That's where that big bull was you seen from camp the first day, eight mile away. Eight miles? You mean I was seeing a caribou eight miles away? Eight miles, uh uh-huh. Phil located a grizzly browsing close to base camp. The bear was probably six miles away, but clearly visible, hump and all against the tundra vegetation. But the caribou were staying under cover avoiding both sun and flies. Toward dusk, they began emerging. I was on day three of a combined caribou-doll sheep hunt with Phil Esai, a veteran outfitter who regularly, and rather matter-of-factly, provides his clients the kind of Alaska hunting adventures they dream of. Keith Atchison introduced me to Phil and the wonderful hunting at his wilderness camps near Nikolai. In fact, Keith was in camp with me hunting the same species, but under the guidance of Dale Oldham, one of Phil's best guides. Phil and I had spent the previous two days wearing me to a frazzle in sheep terrain. Today he was giving me a rest, an easy caribou hunt en route to our next sheep hunting locale. The 150-foot bluff we were on was the most climbing I had to do all day. That suited me just fine. Towards sundown, just when I thought I was going to escape strenuous exercise for the day, a big, really big bull stepped out of a wrinkle in the landscape. He was less than a mile away, and his velvet-covered antlers dominated his physique. The beams of the Bezes were especially interesting, wide and heavier than any I'd seen in five trips to Alaska. "'Phil, you want to stay and watch for others while I take a closer look at that one?' I asked. Wave me off if you see something bigger. This is something I both love and hate about barren ground caribou hunting. Because the country is so open, you can see dozens of bulls each day. You know there's a beauty out there, and you could take him. And this is the big if. If you can just resist shooting one of the other beauties you spot each day, until Mr. Wright comes along. I fear shooting a fine bull only to have one twice as big stroll by while I'm patting myself on the back. So I was trying to cover as many bases as possible by asking Phil to call me back if he found a larger bull. I started jogging and within 10 minutes I'd ruined my day off. I was running through, not over, but through, the spongy tundra, sinking into that amazing depth of lichens and dwarf birch branches that sucks strength from your legs like a vampire sucks blood. But caribou, wait for no man. If you want to get close to one, you match or exceed its relentless pace. Almost unbelievably, I lost him. Where? I couldn't figure. There was no where. The whole place was as open as Main Street on Sunday morning. How do you lose a caribou with three-foot antlers on the open tundra? I was seriously beginning to question my powers of observation when I cut tracks. Big chunks of tundra had been punched through as if with a six-inch cookie cutter shaped like the hooves of Santa's reindeer. I followed them over a gentle rise, and there was my bull grazing away from me 200 yards out. This splendid animal would score better than 350 Boone and Crockett points. He was so fat that he literally rippled when he walked. And the bezes were as wide and heavy as I'd first thought. I stalked quickly within 100 yards. You can't stalk caribou slowly, or they'll be gone before you get there. I settled the crosshairs behind his shoulder and whistled. He turned and looked double shovels, and even a pair of short back points, those odd tines jutting off the back of the main beams. They're missing from many racks. The four or five top tines weren't spectacular, but overall it was a stunning set of antlers. Chances were good that I'd find nothing bigger in the three to five days of hunting remaining, but I lowered the rifle. You don't take trophy heads by giving in to temptation early. Actually, this wasn't the first big bull I'd seen. While in Route 2 and in sheep camp, I saw numerous caribou, including several bulls with high, wide, and heavy racks. I just couldn't catch up to the big ones. The first one escaped in a thickening rain that first evening in spike camp. Deepening dusk saved the second, but I wasn't worried, and neither was Keith. He agreed we had plenty of animals from which to choose. This is the kind of luxury elk, mule deer, and whitetail hunters only dream about back home. That's what's so special about Alaska hunting. It's what America was. It is one of the last places in the United States where a man as predator can scan the far horizon without fear of highways, trespass, or power lines where wild ungulates breed and browse and migrate unimpeded by anything more technologically complex than wolves and grizzlies, where man could voluntarily strip the flimsy trappings of civilization wrapped around him, drop his rifle, and start looking for a sharp rock, setting back the calendar 300 years. Not that I'm ready to do that, but it's refreshing to know it's an option. This hunt, though, is definitely... 20th century. My spear point is gilding metal and lead seven millimeters wide flying at 2,900 feet per second from a 22 inch steel tube cradled in a Kevlar stock. My aim is aided by telescopic glass, the magnification of which I can change from two to eight power at will. My vision while scouting is boosted seven times by a waterproof binocular. 20 times by a spotting scope the collective brain power of my species is definitely my major asset the one thing technology has not given me is time time to sit and watch to wait for the right animal at the right moment despite all our time and labor-saving devices we are slaves to our technology I must hunt fast and efficiently in order to catch my bush plane back to civilization, in time to catch my commercial flight back home in order to meet my work deadlines, in order to get paid, in order to pay the mortgage. The schedule's been established for weeks. It's all stored in the computers. Don't be late. I try to forget that out here. For now, for 10 glorious days, computers and schedules are just bad dreams. I will be man the hunter for a few days, trying to feel and live by nature's rhythms only. Phil was waiting for me when I tramped back from my close encounter with a bull. The sun had set and our hunt was done for the day. We slid down the gravel cliff face and started up the river toward camp, pushing two nervous caribou as we went, their stubby white tails cocked straight up, shining like beacons in the deepening dark. It wasn't until two days later after a successful sheep hunt that I could again concentrate on caribou. Keith had already taken his. Just after Phil and I packed my sheep out of the mountains, Dale and Keith went to climb the high bluff above the river. There's a nice bull over there with really wide beams on his bezes, I told him. Watch for him. He looked pretty good. I almost shot him. I probably should have. Well, Keith did. He and Dale came into camp weighed down with meat, bearing the antlers high and proudly. Those wide bez beams were unmistakable. That's him, I said. That's my bull. Well, not anymore, he isn't, Keith said, grinning. Well, where was he? Just on the backside of that ridge, Dale said, pointing to the western skyline. Were you on that high gravel bluff above the river? Was he east of there? Yep, closer to the top of the ridge, though. That's right where I saw him. He was hardly moving in all those two days. I was sorry now that I hadn't taken him when I had the chance. It was a beautiful set of antlers, but I was happy for Keith. It's easy to feel generous when you have a big sheep in the smokehouse and plenty of caribou wandering the plains around camp. I was, however, down to one day of hunting before I was scheduled to rejoin the world of deadlines. We saw two black bears and another grizz today, Keith said big black bears. I almost took one instead of the caribou. I'll bet he goes seven feet. It was a noisy round of storytelling over plates of Dora Esai's barbecued sheep ribs that night. Phil's son-in-law, John Runkle, had come into camp that morning with his wife, Marty, and their two children. Marty was helping her mother ply us with fresh pies and cakes. I didn't stop at two helpings. John and Dale promised we'd be working off that extra pounds while searching for caribou in the morning. Phil would take a well-earned break. Don't worry, we'll... uh, We'll see plenty of bulls, John said. I didn't doubt him. My last day dawned cloudy and windy, reminded me of South Dakota in late September. We started the hunt atop grandpa's knob, an isolated hill on which Phil's grandfather used to scout for game. It was still a fine lookout from which we counted, 13 caribou. I turned them all down and we continued toward the river bluff, the wind drawing tears from my eyes. The first thing we spotted was another black bear. Dale said it wasn't the biggest one he and Keith had seen the previous day, but was in the same area. We watched it feed on blueberries as it slowly worked up the ridge where Keith had taken his caribou. Suddenly, the bear reared up on its hind legs, turned its head nervously. He's caught the scent of blood from last night, Dale whispered. Makes him nervous. He doesn't know what to make of it. That surprised me. I would have thought a black bear would have followed his nose directly to the cornucopia of offal, but this one looked more apt to turn tail and flee. Apparently, in a land where grizzly is king, black bears must be cautious in approaching kill sites. A heap of fresh meat isn't worth a mauling by a big grizzly. Well, this bear dropped to all fours and rushed into heavy brush but soon he slipped out the backside again, looking up the ridge and sniffing. He was obviously intrigued by the odor. You wanna take him? John asked. According to Alaska state law, I was entitled to tag either a caribou, moose, wolverine, wolf or black bear with the caribou tag in my pocket. The moose season wasn't open yet or I would have already shot one of the three huge bulls I'd seen. But now I had to decide between a good sized black bear or the possibility of a trophy caribou, a bear in the hand, or a boo in the bush. The three of us took a quick scan and counted seven caribou, one of which looked pretty good. The sun was no more than three hours up, and it wouldn't set for another 13 hours. "Ah, Let's go for the caribou. We have black bears back home, I said. Well, within a half-hour, we'd spotted what appeared to be a fine bull across the river in taiga forest. That's a scattering of dwarf spruce and short, tangled dwarf birch and willows. He was with two smaller bulls, perhaps four miles out and behind a thick band of spruces bordering the river. At twenty power, we could tell his shovel reached to the end of his nose and was fairly broad. His bezes were better than average, but his best attribute was main beam height and some tremendously long top tines. Can we get to him in time, I asked. I think so. The problem is going to be finding him again in all that brush. It'll look a lot different from ground level. Well, nothing ventured, nothing gained, I said. We dropped off that high bluff and looked for a path through the forest. Now John runs a long winter trap line through this area and he knew of an old cat track through the forest. Cat tracks being bulldozer trails pushed cross country in search of mineral wealth. Well this one led to a mine site that apparently hadn't yielded enough wealth to maintain the road. We missed it twice before finally noticing a faint opening in the timber. It wasn't obvious without snow covering the young low growing brush. The going was tough over fallen trees, muskeg, hummocks, dog hair stands of young spruce, but we eventually broke out into the more open taiga forest. Now we just had to find that caribou before they all drifted into the woods again, which they already could have done, but they hadn't. Within a half hour, we spotted them trotting through the scattered trees. They were 400 yards from us and within several hundred yards of the solid wall of trees and moving closer, though they still stopped brows. We'd have to move fast to cut him off. The three of us dropped into a low spot, hunkered over, and began jogging west, keeping one eye on the treacherous footing, another on the bulls. By the time we'd pulled even with them, I was breathing hard. You ready? John whispered. Yeah, just let me catch my breath. There they are, Dale Stage whispered from several yards behind me. He had stopped when one bull stepped out from behind a tree and looked right at him. Another tree blocked us from that animal's view. I turned slowly and nodded to let Dale know we were aware of the situation. The caribou were within 80 yards and the brush was so thick that we probably could have sneaked within bow range. We waited for a clear shot at the biggest bull. I didn't want to get in a hurry at this point and shoot one of the younger animals. We caught glimpses of them moving behind a small clump of spruces. There's the perfect neck shot on the big bull, Dale called. He was waving me back toward him. I duck walked the few yards. Sure enough, the biggest bull was standing with his neck and head clearly visible between two trees. I leveled the 284 ultralight, double checked the antlers to make sure I had the right target, dropped the crosshairs onto the neck, and quickly pulled the trigger. I noticed the bull start to drop its head and turn. He's hit! He's hit! John was up and running as the bull spun and plunged northwest, instantly swallowed by trees. I caught flashes of two bulls running northeast. All three of us met at the gap in the spruces where the bull had been standing when I shot. He was nowhere in sight. The smaller bulls broke into the clear about 200 yards away and stood watching. He's hit, but not in the neck, I said. He was turning just when I shot. I rushed the shot, but it should have caught him in the side and quartered up into his lungs. There was no blood. We fanned out and walked north. I watched the distance for a standing animal. John and Dale were looking in the brush for a downed animal. We went about 70 yards and found nothing. Here he is, John shouted and waved. The bull was dead behind two spruces. I was amazed at how well hidden he was. If not for his tall antlers, he would have been tough to see at all. He had indeed turned and dropped his head when I shot. My 140 grain nozzler partition had entered in the ham, sliced the ball joint nearly in half and quartered lengthwise forward. It never exited, which is why we found no blood trail. Dale immediately began ribbing me about shooting a bull in the butt. John and Dale performed one of the neatest butchering jobs on that caribou I've ever witnessed. By mid-afternoon, we had meat, cape and antlers back in camp, leaving plenty of time for fleshing and peeling velvet. The longest top tines stretch 24 inches and the rack grossed 375 Boone and Crockett points and netted 364. A wonderful trophy in an awesome land on the last day of a delightful hunt. Well, I didn't even remember all that stuff. Now, I've got a, a sidebar here. Those are those little boxes with extra information you see in magazine articles. And this one's called planning an Alaska caribou hunt. And let's read it, but I'm guessing I'm going to be talking about all the gear I was using. Caribou are among the most abundant, least expensive, and most impressive exotic big game animals in North America. They're also the most fun to hunt because they're so visible. I don't know of any hunter who doesn't like to see lots of game while afield, especially big bucks and bulls. A caribou's antlers are more impressive than an elk's or moose's compared to its body size. Most caribou hunts can be booked on relatively short notice, but it's best to plan at least a year ahead of time. Now would be a good time to line up a 1992 hunt, right? Jack Atchison & Sons, yeah, at Ottawa Street, Butte, Montana, or call 406-782-2382 for complete information about Philly-sized splendid hunting camps. Or you can try contacting Phil directly in Nikolai, Alaska. I'm not even going to read that number because it's probably not valid anymore. Phil has a reputation for excellent success on doll sheep, grizzlies, black bear, and moose, as well as caribou. Although a big bull caribou from Alaska will weigh nearly 400 pounds, it will not be difficult to kill with a well-placed shot. A medium-caliber flat-shooting rifle in the 25.06 6 to 30.6 6 class throwing 100 to 165 grain bullet will perform admirably. Binoculars in 7 to 10 power will allow you to spot and enjoy watching game of all descriptions. A spotting scope from 20 to 40 power can help you assess trophies without having to run all over the tundra. Alaska's caribou season opens in early August in many hunting units and extends for several months but you'll find hunting most comfortable in late August and September. Regardless of when you go, take clothing both for warm and dry weather and for cool and wet weather. I've sweated up there in August and I've also shivered in two feet of snow in August. Wear layered clothing to save weight and make sure at least one outer layer is waterproof, especially your boots. Before leaving on the hunt, practice shooting your hunting rifle from the sitting and offhand positions. Because of low brush and flat terrain, sitting and offhand are often your only options. Also, practice judging distances in open terrain. You shouldn't need more than one or two shots to take your trophy, but Murphy's Law applies in the wilderness. Take at least 40 rounds for insurance in case you have to recite your rifle or something goes wrong. Don't forget to pack a length of old garden hose and a roll of duct tape. With this, you will cover the ends of all antler points required before airlines will accept the racks for shipment. Well, that took me back to some good old days. I remember that hunt that was in the early 90s and... mm, there was a good camp they were good outfitters and good guides. they got along just great with everybody and they had a lot of game i mean that was just a classic alaska caribou hunt
2: our, our alaska caribou hunts didn't they didn't the caribou population decline in the late oh, 90s yeah.
1: yes there was a, a big decline all across the north country it's, it's odd but not really because back when i was a kid caribou were not all that abundant And there was this theory that they were living on a cycle, something like the lynx and the snowshoe hare, where they would go up and down in populations. And they thought perhaps caribou were doing something similar, but on a much long-term basis, like 70 years, perhaps, between the highs and the lows, or maybe even more.
2: I don't think we're going to be alive in 70 years (laughs) to go caribou hunting. I was thinking about like next summer. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, I get you now. No, there are still caribou around. And some herds, uh, isolated herds, are doing quite well, I've heard. There are some in um, Alaska that are coming back very well. Um, but some up in like the George River, Leaf River herds up in Northeast Canada that really took it in the shorts. And the last time I hunted up there, they were, there were several sick caribou that we saw. They had lesions and they were coughing. And I think it was an overpopulation. I think what happens is the population builds and builds until they pretty much strip that tundra habitat. And it takes a long time for those plants to regrow up there.
2: So, so what's caribou hunting like now?
1: Well, I think it's still one of the more uh, available exotics that you can hunt. You know, when you go sheep hunting, you have to have an outfitter and a guide, and it's a lot of expense. Caribou are still fairly inexpensive, and it's easy to go on a drop camp hunt, for instance. So you can get up to a lodge somewhere, and they'll fly you out, drop you off with a tent or a cabin, and you can hunt by yourself, or you can have the guide. So you have more options.
2: I I have a question. Uh, I didn't think you could hunt in Alaska without a guide.
1: You can for caribou and black bear and maybe mountain goat, it used to be mountain goat, but there are a few species in Alaska that you can do-it-yourself hunt, and it used to include moose and maybe still does. Don't remember for sure, but look at, yeah, if you're interested in a do-it-yourself caribou hunt, Alaska is a good place to go. I'm sure a lot of the Canadian provinces have it as well. So just do your research, find out which ones allow you to do your own hunt, and then find hire a drop-off service because you probably have to fly in somewhere so you get the plane to drop you off at a camp but be careful that they don't put you into the camp that everybody else is in i hear this quite a bit guys will book a hunt and the the uh, drop camp guide with the airplane will take them to a lake that's easy access and drop them off on one side then on the other side of the lake there's another camp on the north end there's another camp and you, you realize you're, you're in a small community. Instead of in, in a herd of caribou, you're in a herd of hunters. So be cautious of that.
2: I, I hear our dog barking. I don't know if it's coming through.
1: Yeah, she wants to be part of the podcast.
2: I know she wants to be part of the clan. <laughs> <here>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Quiet down there, Covey. So, uh, yeah, I'd like to date uh, another caribou hunt here. I would love too to. So- I mean,
2: that's that adventure sounds incredible. One of the things I thought about was when, did you go off by yourself? I mean, it's off flat. So is there a sense of loss of direction? I mean, I'd be completely. Oh, yeah,
1: there sure can be. The first hunt I ever took, Tom Huggler and I got dropped off and we were in a small backpack tent. And, of course, we were all excited to see the new country and explore. So we popped that tent up dropped our gear off in it and then said, well, let's get out there and look, do some scouting. So we just took off and a general sense of direction, you know, but not much more than that. And then when we were coming back at dusk, we realized there were no landmarks. We were moving in the right direction, but where was that tent? Oh my gosh. I finally got down on my belly in that wet muskeg and looked at the skyline and saw a straight line. That was the roof of the tent. That's the only way we found it. So we would have been out there all night pretty cold because there's nothing to burn up on that tundra.
2: Yeah, you have to really be prepared to be in that country and, and have great survival skills.
1: <laughs> yeah, planning is probably more valuable than great survival skills because you don't need your survival skills. If you plan <laughs> properly, bring all the right stuff, and, yeah, don't get S- lost.
2: So when you were up there, what gun did you take, and would you take something different
1: Oh, I remember on this hunt, I was using one of my all-time favorites. It's an Ultra Light arms, Model 20, short action, chambered for the two hundred eighty four Winchester, which, oh, I took a lot of game with that rifle. The, the rifle itself weighed less than five pounds, if I remember, br- naked, before I put a scope on it. By the time I scoped it up, put a sling on it, and loaded four rounds down, I was still carrying a rifle that was right at about six pounds. So what was really light and easy to carry around.
2: You love those light rifles. Oh,
1: they're so effective. And it's just such a treat to carry them. Stick it in your pack. You don't even know you have it with you.
2: How, how come I don't have a light rifle?
1: I made one for you. That's that 260 <laughs> oh, Remington. that's right. That's right. Yeah, you thought you needed a three thirty eight Winchester Magnum. So. No,
2: I never. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I really like those light rifles. And when you have to cover a lot of ground, and on this hunt, I was not hunting just Caribou, but also sheep. So that's initially why I went with the light rifles. But they work so well, and I shot them so well. I mean, I shot sheep at 400 yards with those, and I don't generally shoot stuff really far out. But I remember taking a ram at 350, and another one at four, 450, and then these caribou that I picked up with it. Um, it, yeah it just worked really well i think i was using 140 grain partition which is always a great bullet but it's not the most ballistically efficient these days we've got better bullets as far as ballistic efficiency so you will resist the wind drift a lot more with the new bullets and retain more energy downrange
2: so what would you take now what would you be your favorite
1: oh cartridge? boy for a bullet i I'd look real hard at one of the Barnes long-range bullets, the LRX, and or an Accubond long-range from Nosler. That's real good. Had excellent luck with those, and then it might try something new, cutting edge, has some really cool bullets now in um, all copper with some hollow noses, and some of them are designed to break petals off and. It's fun stuff to experiment with, but oh, there's so many good options, it's hard to say. The last thing I loaded up for that 284, though, were the 120-grain Barnes X, and it was shooting those sub-MOA, and I've forgotten what the velocity was, but it was somewhere up around 3,200 feet per second.
2: How do you remember that stuff?
1: <laughs> I don't know, honey. It's just, it's interests me. It's like people can remember whatever their interests are they remember it you know their golf clubs or their tennis scores or whatever it is
2: yeah that's, yep. that is that is your passion
1: but listen we'd better ring off if if you listeners are interested in a caribou hunt I would Definitely urge you to go on one because, as I said earlier, it's the most affordable of the exotics, even though it's a North American native animal, because you're up in the Arctic, you're up in the tundra, and it's new, and it's unusual, and it's stunningly beautiful, and you've got that Daniel Boone, Lewis and Clark feeling of exploring new country where no man has gone before, even though there's probably been somebody up there dropped off with a cub (laughs) <laughs> but it sure feels like you're the first person up there and it is just so much fun. And if you get into the right unit that has good numbers of caribou in a good herd yet and get where they're migrating through, or if you go early enough, they're still on their summer range and they're sticking to it. Um, you can have yourself just one heck of a hunt and the antlers on a caribou are the largest for body size of any deer. So you are going to really really think you've got a monster and it's just the meat is really good too so the whole program is wonderful so if you want to plan your first arctic adventure that's affordable that's a good place to start caribou hunting in north america man that's a treat So this is Ron Spomer signing off on this podcast. And of course, I'm always inviting you folks to join us on our YouTube channel as well in ronspomeroutdoors.com website, Instagram and Facebook at Ron Spomer. And now we are on Patreon and we invite you to get that Patreon app and join us there as a contributing member to Ron Spomer Outdoors. And we're then open to suggestions of what you would like us to cover next. So thanks for listening. And until next time. Hunt honest, shoot straight.